Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are up to episode three of American Beginnings. And if I remember correctly, you weren't sure what this week's title would be. You were debating between the passage and something else. And the passport, yes. So I have decided to do one on each and extend the American series to five podcasts. And this one, therefore, is going to be The Passage. Now, there are certain dates which ring a bell in Jewish history. 1492, for instance, or 1648, Tachbetat, 1948, uh, possibly 1096, the Crusades. 1881 tends not to be one of them, although it changed the modern Jewish world by bringing the greatest movement of Jews in history with four million Jews moving from Eastern Europe over the next 45 years, mostly to America. And what we need to look at is what that decision was like. And in fact, who moved, given that eight million remained behind. So you're saying a third of the Jewish population moved out of Europe? Out of, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Although, before we get, I guess, to 1881, let's fill in a little bit of the blanks because two weeks ago we dealt with the early republic, uh, the first Jews, the first impact on America, the late 1700s, in other words, which leaves a century until 1881. So let's have a look at those years. Early immigration was slow. In the 1780s, German Jewry sent a letter to the president of America asking him to permit them to become subjects of the 13 provinces, as it was at the time, and that they would gladly uh, contribute twofold taxes to the United States and convert parts of America, which was desert-like, into fertile land. So that's the early beginnings. Um, In the 1830s, Jews were about 15,000 out of 17 million Americans, so a a tiny minority, about, I guess, one in a thousand. Today, it's one in 60. Immigration increases fourfold over the next 20 years. By 1850, there are 60,000 Jews, and these were not Eastern European Jews. This was primarily Jews from Germany, Ashkenazi Jews, and the process often was that young single men would venture over and after they'd made some money they would return back to Germany to get married or sometimes they actually proposed marriage to a young woman from their hometown or village by uh, writing a letter sending it by post. That's very romantic. Absolutely. (laughs) Or they relied on friends or relatives who were going back to make a shidduch long distance. And that meant that the early American Jewish communities were male majorities. 
And these men started out as peddlers in remote areas because it required very little capital for startup and it fits the life of a single man. So these remote areas didn't have larger stores and the Jewish immigrants would get to a larger city, load themselves up with goods weighing potentially as much as 100 pounds, and then they would walk from place to place selling. Or if eventually they made enough money, I guess they'd take a horse and cart, which was similar to really what many were doing in Europe. My mother tells me that she remembers a guy who used to stay with them in their village every year in northeastern France. This is before the war, obviously. And he had a route from Poland to France and back, which he would basically walk. So it was common. And in fact, in the United States, Jewish peddlers were so widespread that probably 70% of Jews were in that line of work. And we have a statistic from Iowa that of the 125 Jews living there, 100 of them were peddlers. So they traveled the whole way to America only to become peddlers. But could make a lot more money and were a lot less restricted. And one of the outcomes was that they made their living selling all over the USA. So by the middle of the century, the American Jewish communities were stretched across the entire country. There were more than 100 kahilis. And these were mostly German Jews, a little bit from Alsace. And this continued until around 1880, when it more or less came to an end. So that explains why until today, American Jews are everywhere. They're not yes. concentrated into Yep. And America surely must have changed Jewishly a bit with all this mass immigration of Jews from Europe, no? So one of the things that we can say is that things started to be made in the USA, to paraphrase Bruce Springsteen. Mm -hmm. The first Haggadah was printed in the USA by 1840. And when you think nowadays how many millions of Haggadahs they have printed since, just the Maxwell House Haggadah, there are over 50 million that have been made. But that started then. And in the early 1850s, machine-made matzahs were introduced into New York. And before they were accepted, they needed a rabbinic hersha, rabbinic opinion on the matter. But there were no authorities yet in the USA. So they asked the chief rabbi of England, Rabbi Nathan Adler, who permitted their use as long as there was not more than a nine-minute wait until the matzah was baked. Although in 1881, you have famously Rabbi Dovber Manishevitz, who opens up in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was a Talmud Chochem. He'd been one of the pupils of the famous Rabbi Sral Salant, and so he was a, a trusted source. But it wasn't just in Jewish areas that Jews got involved during these decades. American life, the first Jewish congressman and the first Jewish senator were both elected in 1845. They both came from the south, southern states, and ended up staying in the houses until 1851. Uh, the more interesting of the two was Louis uh, Levine, or Levin, who was the congressman. He was particularly colourful. 
the party he represented and he himself were far right-wing, racist, anti-immigration, which is quite incredible for a Jew who basically owed his existence to the fact that America let him in. And he was a, a brilliant speaker. He was also a drunk. He married out twice, and he died in an insane asylum. So, you know, c- colourful. Politicians were already colourful back then. Absolutely. And you had Jews who were pro-slavery and anti-slavery, and therefore in the American Civil War, you had uh, maybe 3,000 Jews fighting on the Confederate and the Southern side, and maybe 7,000 on the Union side, and it produced nine Jewish generals and 21 Jewish colonels. Famously, in the middle of the war, in December 1862, Major General Ulysses Grant, who was angry at the illegal trade in smuggled cotton, issued the infamous General Order Number 11, which expelled Jews from areas under his control, which was Tennessee, Mississippi, part of Kentucky, within 24 hours of the order being signed. So the Jews appealed to Lincoln, who immediately ordered Grant to rescind the order. And the Jews gained from this because they now knew that they could fight back if it was bigotry and win, even if the person was a prominent general, which obviously was unheard of in Europe. Although the truth is that Grant very much regretted his wartime order. He apologized for it publicly. And when he became president in 1869, he ended up appointing more Jews to public office than any of his predecessors and gave unprecedented support to persecuted Jews in Russia and Romania. Wow, so the Jews really felt at home there. Understandably. Now, this feeling that America really was the land of the free even spilled over to those who admired the USA from afar. After the assassination of President Lincoln in 1865, the American consul at Odessa in Russia, Ukraine nowadays, enclosed a letter to the State Department written by a Jew there called Abraham Nudich, a grain dealer. The letter was written in English, which was very unusual because even educated Jews in the Russian Empire spoke or wrote French and German. Now, we don't know much about this guy. The consul describes him as a Jew of around 30 who was educated mostly on his own, self-educated. And the consul wrote that he's sending the letter as the sort of evidence of the intensity of feeling in this remote country for the loss of President Lincoln. And he calls the letter a remarkable production and asked or suggested, I guess, that a copy be sent to Mrs. Lincoln and maybe that it should be printed in the American newspapers for you know, the Americans to understand how widespread the loss is being felt. And the interesting thing is that this consul was not positively inclined towards the Jews. After, for instance, the Odessa pogrom of 1871, he displayed a very anti-Jewish bias, which was much more in tune with the normal Russian attitude towards the Jews. And I'll just read you 
a line or two from the letter. It says, The whole Jewish community shares this sorrow and was ready even to collect a fund to perpetuate the memory of the martyr president. Now, of course, back in 1865, there were very few sort of two-way links between Russian Jews and the New World, even one-way links. No one was really traveling. And Nadich wrote poetically, Thou belongest not to thyself and America only, but to the whole world. <laughs> Which is uh, very sweet. I'm assuming this freedom, though, had its downsizes. A lot of American Jews were too free and they became so. Poor. Yes. I mean, there's one particular area that we could relate this to, and that is freedom from religion. In the USA during the 19th century, two of the major branches of non-orthodoxy, you could actually say anti-orthodoxy, flourished. Reform came across from Germany and ended up being five times the size of orthodoxy. And then there was conservative Judaism which ironically started out as a counter-reaction to Reform Judaism because they felt that Reform was too left-wing. In other words, they'd gone too far, especially after the infamous banquet in 1883 where the Reform officials served a trafe meal, and it was a meal that was celebrating the graduation and ordination of their first four rabbis, from the HUC, Hebrew Union College, which was their headquarters. And when I say treif, I don't just mean that the wine wasn't kosher. The second course was shrimp. There were clams, frog's legs. The, they actually drew a line that they did not serve pork. But that was about it. And when challenged on it, Isaac Mayer Weiss, who was the leader of the reform movement in America, he said that uh, dietary laws have lost their validity. And, you know, we still have the menu from it. In it, you see little neck clams <laughs> with then the next course, poisson. You've got uh, filet de boeuf aux champignons, a soft shell crabs à l'Amérique, pomme duchesse and salad of shrimp. You're making me hungry, Rabbi Hash. I hope not. <laughs> So there was a downside, and it continued through the period of major immigration after 1881, although in those subsequent years, the movement was not towards reform, but secularism, which we will see in one of the two future episodes within this series. So that gives you sort of a snapshot overview of 1780 to 1880, from 3,000 Jews to what eventually then becomes 300,000 Jews. And then I guess it turns into 3 million Jews. Yes, because there's a major sea change after 1881. We've mentioned in previous episodes that Tsar Alexander II was assassinated in that year in Russia. And even though the Jews were only tangentially associated with the assassination and they were a minority of the revolutionaries there the reaction of the government was very much against the jews in the immediate short term in 1881 there were pogroms over large parts of the russian empire where jews lived because most of the empire they were forbidden to reside in and in the long term, there were hundreds of anti-Jewish laws drafted, and this left the Jews with a quandary. 
to go or not to go. Because in America, you can do anything you want. You can own a factory, you can live where you like, it's a free country. But if you go, you will basically never see your family again. And that was a real question. So in 1881, there's 6,000 Jews that go. In 1882, there are 12,000 Jews that go. In 1892, there are 50,000 Jews. In 1902, another 10 years later, there are 100,000 Jews that travel in that year. And by 1906, there are 150,000 Jews just in that year traveling from the Russian Empire and immigrating to the United States. So the fact that we had a rebirth of the Jewish people after the Holocaust was largely thanks to this, just the fact that we have numbers around the world. Yes, yeah. I mean, by 1945, there were 6 million Jews in America. Absolutely. Incredible. And this happened in a short span. Yep, yeah. And the tragedy is that 6 million in 1945 and around the same, slightly less, in 2021. Whereas by now, there should really be 30 million there, at least. It's wow. the land of the free. That's assimilation. So America's total population grows from 50 million in 1880 to 120 million in 1925. The whole world was on the move. Germans, Irish, Italians going to the United States. And the Jews grow from, you know, around 300,000 to around 4 million by 1925. New York ends up with over 1.5 million Jews, and they outnumber the second largest Jewish community, which is Warsaw, by more than 5 to 1. And Chicago, with its 285,000 Jews, Philadelphia, with 240,000 Jews, are now the third and fourth largest Jewish enclaves, Jewish cities in the world. They are outstripping Vienna, London, Lodz, Kiev. There are more Jews in these cities than any single city in Europe. What was the journey like from Europe to America? Well, before we get to the journey itself, let's deal a little bit with the decision making. An extract gives you an idea. I'll quote, on a day in August, I left Znamenka for America. When I began to say goodbye, my brothers and sisters were crying loudly and my mother fainted. When my mother was brought to, I said that if she wished it, I wouldn't go. No, she said, I shall faint again when they take you away to be a soldier to war, and then you won't be able to stay. So go. And to answer your question, they left Russia for a port in the West, like Hamburg, and they traveled third class steerage, as it was known. The sleeping quarters in these ships had about 300 compartments ranged in sort of two or three bunks across an entire room lower down in the ship. And each of these beds were around six feet and there was a half a foot of space above each berth. I guess you could think of each birth as an oblong box and that was the immigrants entire territory and in this iron frame there was a, a mattress and a blanket and you used your life preserver as a pillow the blanket was usually so flimsy that passengers had to sleep in their clothing stewards never changed or cleaned the berths even when the voyage lasted two weeks or more 
and there was no room for hand baggage. You weren't allowed to put any on the floor. And of course, everyone came with something, pots and pans, whatever. There were no closets, no hooks. It all had to be placed on your berth, as well as any, you know, towels, toilet necessities. So they brought with two weeks of food? They had to, more or less. I mean, I'll give you a quote in a moment where you'll understand what choices they had, especially if they kept kosher. And the shipping lines allowed very limited open deck space to those passengers in steerage. And since there were no waste barrels or sick cans supplied, the steerage floor was damp and filthy and the air stank. In fact, maybe I'll give you the quote now. On the first day, I went to the mess counter for food and was handed a chunk of white bread and herring, which I took to my bunk. Meat and soup was treif, so I wouldn't take it. I bit into the bread. It tasted like chalk. The herring stank. I threw it all away. We dug out of Joseph's pack some of the hard tack and rock-like farmer trees that one of our relations had supplied. We munched on that. The following day, we didn't need any food. In fact, we seemed to have plenty to give up. It was stormy. The boat rocked and shook. But the portholes had to be closed to prevent flood. Remember, they're lower down in the ship. The smell of disinfectant stifled me. I kept tossing about. I stuck my head out of the bunk a little. From the upper bunk, my neighbour showered me with some of his regurgitated food. There was no privacy. Men, women and children were all mixed together. A tin can to hold the water was distributed every evening. It was all you could get until the following evening. One day I ate a piece of the herring. Soon after I drank all the water I had, and that same evening I was burning up with thirst. Our greatest suffering was due to a scarcity of water. The hardships of the trip began to tell on my mother, and she took sick and developed a fever. Now, bearing in mind that when you got to America, you were checked for illness, and therefore this could have been a reason for her to be sent back. Wow. So it wasn't just simply, you know, big deal. Okay, she'll get over it. She might not have made, made it into the land of the free. It's almost like arriving today with COVID symptoms. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And in fact, the US Immigration Commission investigated conditions sometime in the early 1900s. They were disguised as travelers, and one of them, Anna Herkner, crossed the ocean three times in steerage, and she writes that there were eight toilets and eight wash basins for over 200 women and children, and the same ratio for men. The toilet seats were always wet. Water often stood inches deep on the floor. And the immigrants had to rise at five in the morning or early if they hoped to get into a washroom before breakfast at seven. No bathtubs. And to monopolize a basin for more than a few minutes was impossible. And then she writes, I think as a final line, that on docking, each woman was given a piece of candy and each man a pipe and some tobacco. The intention was to sweeten the last memory of steerage. But these people were making a killing under awful conditions of, you know, their passengers. And they disembarked, you know, we're familiar with Castle Garden or what afterwards became Ellis Island, but there were other major ports such as Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and this was, you know, their first taste of this immigration. But in addition to the misery of travel, countless thousands were treated on arrival, sometimes literally when they got off the boat in New York, somebody offered to take their luggage for them, and it was the last time they saw it. But I've met 
a number of people whose ancestors had been headed to America and they got off the boat in, in Liverpool or Glasgow or, you know, one of the other ports in, in the United Kingdom, either because they were told, you're now in America, or because they were actually conned and sold a ticket to England and not to America in the first place. Wow. So it really wasn't plain sailing. If you get the pun. Yes, no no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> well, for many, no. And, and it's somewhat of an unknown part of this immigration. Thank you, as always, for another informative podcast. Before we go, we got an email asking, who was the first rabbi in the USA? Because there were many prominent rabbis later, but right. who was the first? Well, that title probably belongs to Rabbi Gershon Mendes Seishas. He was definitely the first homegrown rabbis born in America. I suppose in the 21st century, it would be unthinkable for the Jews of North America not to have trained rabbis. But 250 years ago, it was completely different. There were you know, around 3,000 Jews. The few synagogues that existed had chazanim, who carried out general religious duties. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that America had its first permanent European rabbi who had smicha from a recognized rabbinic authority. And this Rabbi Seishas, which is actually spelt S-E-I-X-A-S, at the age of 23 became a chazan in New York City in Congregation Sheeris Yisrael in 1768. Obviously, he had no role models. He became a teacher, a supervisor of Kashrus, he performed marriages, he, you know, wrote the Kasubas sometimes, and he was increasingly referred to as rabbi. Of course, he didn't have smicha from whom, but he did correspond regularly with Rabbonim in Europe, especially the ones in London, and he was a self-taught moel. But to calm your fears, we have a letter from a local doctor who praised him for his surgical expertise even when he was 70. Of course, there weren't many Moelim around, and a child would often not undergo brismila on, on the eighth day as a result. And the interesting thing is that he was instrumental in saving the Sheiris Yisrael Cemetery in Chatham Square, Manhattan, where he would eventually be buried. Uh, he also established Chesed the MS in 1802 and the Hebrew Relief Society, which are respectively the oldest burial and Jewish charitable societies in the USA. And he had 15 children. So that, I guess, is the first rabbi. He also had his siblings very involved in America. I think one of his brothers was involved in the founding of the New York Stock Exchange. And this Rabbi Satius participated, he was one of 14 clergymen who participated in George Washington's 1789 inauguration as president of the United States. And the interesting thing is, so this cemetery in which he was buried, which is nowadays in Chinatown, every year during Memorial Day services, a military guard of honor place an American flag on his grave. There's a whole ceremony. And he provided a framework for Judaism for a half a century during America's early years, and we still have some of his droshes. Well, I've never even heard of him. Yep. 
Fascinating. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. As always, any questions, Robert Hirsch is happy to answer them, if given in advance, and can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. We have another two coming up in this series, yes. and next week will be The Passport. So possibly next week will be the unusual experience of immigrants and in small towns, and the week after we will deal with the passport question and preoccupation with identity. I would like just to add one last thing, and that is a uh, thanks to Rabbi Josh Bennett, who pointed out that Mayor LaGuardia, who inaugurated a day for Chaim Solomon, which we mentioned in our first American podcast, he was actually Jewish himself, his mother was Jewish, his father not, and that might have given part of the impetus to it. Wow. So believe it or not, there are certain things you can even correct or inform Rabbi Hirshan. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. <laughs>